All right, so let's look at this first question. Why does religion fail us? Let's look at verse one. It says this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Now, over the last few weeks, uh, John and Drake did an amazing job of showing that our hearts always gravitate towards idolatry. Because of sin, we naturally don't look to the gospel to be right with ourselves, to be right with God, and to be right with others. And we look to things to make ourselves right. I'm reading through the book of Jeremiah right now in my devotional life, and I love what Jeremiah says, that God says through Jeremiah. He says this, My people have committed two great evils. First of all, they've forsaken the fountain of living water, which is a relationship with God, and they've created their own fountains and their own cisterns that are cracked and unhealthy and can't hold any water. This is a good picture of idolatry. We look to things like money, power, career, social media to complete us, but it's like a broken cistern that can't hold water. The reality is your marriage, it can be great, but it can't 100% satisfy you. Your relationships can never 100% satisfy you. Your career can never 100% satisfy you. And religion can't 100% satisfy you. See, religion can also be an idol, just like all those other things that I mentioned. And my definition of religion, there can be good religion. Uh, James says it's those who care for orphans and widows. That's good religion. But bad religion, what I'm talking about today, is man's attempt to be right with God through good works and religious performance. So religion is like trying to quench the thirst of the people with salt water. It won't work. It makes people sick. It makes them thirsty. I love what C.S. Lewis said about religion. He said, of all bad men, religious men are the worst. Why are religious men the worst? They say, come here, hear from God, experience God, know all about him. And instead of a relationship with God, they get rules and oppression, and judgment, and they make their life worse. They don't redeem them to God. And worst of all is they do it all in the name of God. So why does religion fail us? I love what Paul said. He said, it doesn't make us good or loving or like God. It makes us hard-hearted, hard-hearted and judgmental. And so I want to look at one of Jesus's parables with you of what religion does to our hearts. This is found in Luke 18, And this is verses 9 through 14, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Maybe you've heard this before. Verse 9 says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous by their religious performance, and they treated others with contempt. Look at verse 10. It says this. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I love Jesus' stories because this is like an extreme example. Pharisees were these extremely religious people who followed rules. They had rules for the rules. And then you have a tax collector, which is the worst kind of sin. They were literally traitors to God's people and had sided with the Roman Empire. They were the worst kind of sinner. Look at verse 11. It says this, The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. He said this, his internal dialogue. God, I thank you I'm not like other men extortioners, thieves, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Pharisees were supposed to fast once a week. This dude is really religious. He fasts twice a week. He gives tithes of all that he has. 
Verse 13 says this, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so what we learn, religious people believe they're righteous And because they're righteous, they're better than others, and they treat them with contempt. Now, today, I think it's easy to fall into this trap of religion where we can say this, I'm glad I'm not like these kinds of people. Just fill in the blank. You ever had that dialogue? I'm glad I'm not like that kind of person. Fill in the blank. And I'm better than these kinds of people because I do this. Just fill in the blank. This is where religion starts. But who walked away righteous? The religious man came to boast before God, but the sinner came for mercy. See, in religion, righteousness is attained by personal performance and comparison. And the goal is not loving God or others. It's about following rules better than the other guy. And we see here, comparison simply leads to pride. You think you're better than other people. And if you think you're superior to somebody else, did you know you can't love somebody if you think you're better than someone else? That's literally in the history of genocide. The first thing that has to happen is dehumanization. You have to say, that person's not valuable. I'm better than them. Now I can mistreat them. It's the same thing that happens in religion. You get devalued. You get criticized. And so religion, first of all, fails us because it devalues human beings. That's not what Jesus is after. The second reason religion fails us is because of the terrible beauty of God's law. So Paul says the religious do the same thing as the sinner. But what does he mean? I mean, when you compare a sinner and you compare a religious person, they don't really do the same thing. But what Paul's getting at is the law reveals our thought life and what's in our heart. See, the religious person may not cheat on his wife like the sinner, but the religious person might wish he was married to someone else, wish his wife looked Differently, The religious person uh, may not cheat on his wife outwardly, but he lusts in his heart. He might even have an addiction to pornography. So he's an adulterer too. The sinner may steal outwardly. And religious people might not rob someone, but you know what they do? They wish they had more money. They covet after more money. And you know who they hang out with? They hang out with rich people instead of poor people. Why? Because they believe the rich can benefit them. They're also thieves in their hearts. The religious person may not be violent, but he is with his words. What do I mean by that? I've been in some religious circles where it's not okay to punch the pastor, right? You can't punch the worship director if he's doing bad. But you know what you can do? You can get together and be violent with your words. Do you know what gossip is? You get together with someone, you talk about someone else, and then you murder their reputation and make yourself superior to them. It's the same thing as violence. And so religious people, Paul is saying, are no better because of the law. And the purpose of the law then is to reveal that something is wrong with our heart. It's literally like this giant spotlight that's supposed to shine on your heart and say, hey, something's wrong with you. Your heart is broken. One of the ways I like to think of religion and fulfilling God's law, it's like trying to long jump from Europe to North America. It's about 4,000 miles, right? Now, you might follow the law a little better than me, so it's like long jumping 20 feet. I long jump 15 feet. Maybe someone in here is like world-class 
rule follower, right? They can, they can long jump 25 feet. Like you're getting, you're getting out there and you might brag, yeah, I long jumped 25 feet. That dude only long jumps 20. I'm way better than them. But the reality is all of us are still 4,000 miles short of fulfilling God's law. The law tells us we fall short of God's glory. And the beauty of the law creates this level playing field where nobody is superior except for Jesus Christ. He's the only one. And so the reason religion fails a second is because it approaches God's law incorrectly. And next, religion fails us because the law doesn't have the power to change us. I want you guys to think about Colorado drivers for a second, all right? Now, we have a lot of speed limit signs up, and we have a lot of traffic laws in place. But do all those laws that are put in place make people good drivers? I mean, if you drive from I-25 from here uh, down to Denver, it's crazy. Like, no one uses their turn signal. Everyone goes at least 20 miles an hour over. You almost die every time you go. (laughs) And so, literally, what I'm saying is this is the law. It's completely powerless to make you a good driver. And likewise, the law is powerless to make us good. So here's some helpful applications so we won't become a religious people in a bad way. If you think you're superior to other people, Paul would say you're in greater danger than the sinner. So you need to check your dialogue, your internal dialogue. If you think you're superior to other people, you're in greater danger than the sinner. Now, next uh, application is this. I run into a lot of Christians who say, well, nobody can judge me but God. And usually what they mean is, I don't want anyone ever to observe anything in my life, and I don't want anyone to ever talk to me because I'm overly sensitive, right? But the scriptures say there's kind of a difference between judgment to condemn and observation to build up. So just like I said, judgment would be gossip, Or you are making yourself to be superior to somebody. You're not loving them. You don't care about them. But an observation, we're actually commanded to do in the church. If I'm doing something wrong and you make that observation, you should come talk to me about it. But you know what your approach should be? Loving and gentle. And you say, hey, you know what? I'm no better than you. I'm a sinner. I break God's law. And hey, I love you. I see this in your life. I've observed this. Can I help you walk with God? Because I love you. And the third thing we need to know about church, people are messy. You know what you guys should expect? Messiness. All right, don't expect perfect law obedience from Christians. If you have this expectation that everyone around you needs to follow the law perfectly in your church, in your workplace, in your family, you're going to be really frustrated. And the other people around you will never be good enough. But our goal as a Christian church is not rule-following, but it's faith from God's love that leads to good works. Which leads to my second question. What is the evidence of saving faith? What does it look like then if you're really saved, if it's not religion? Let's look at Romans 2, and we're going to look at verses 4, and we're going to look at 6 and 7. Verse 4 says this. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Verse 6 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing 
seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Okay, so right here, it says good works are important for salvation. But the chapter before in Romans 1, it says it's faith and grace alone. So what is it? You could look at Paul and be like, dude, is this dude bipolar? Like, what is going on? He's changing his mind. And so here's just a helpful Bible reading um, tip. Anytime you find a statement like this, don't make your entire theology of salvation based on one verse. You always have to compare it throughout all the New Testament authors. And when you do, you're going to see this common theme about good works, and it's this. What we find is that good works is not the basis for salvation. It's not the thing that's going to save you, being a good person. But it is the evidence that you have saving faith. Now, this gets really tricky, all right, because the deception of religion is it can look like Christianity. It can look like good works. And good works, my definition, are external charitable acts that can be seen by others. Christians have good works. Religious people have good works. It can be hard to tell the difference. I used to be a high school teacher, and you know who the best kids in my class were? The Mormons. Man, they were such good students. I loved having Mormons in my class. They would study hard, work hard. They loved everybody, right? They looked like Christians, right? But their motivation, I would say, is different. Uh, I got to do some uh, basement remodeling with a friend, and he came out of Mormonism, grew up in Salt Lake City. And uh, I don't know why I'm sharing this story. This is off, off the uh, script, all right? Uh, I don't have an axe to grind with Mormons either, all right? I love Mormons, all right? If you have a Mormon background, I love you. I want to talk to you. Um, but he said he grew up Mormon, and, uh, and he said his, his best friends would go off on these Mormon mission trips where they couldn't drink, they couldn't smoke, they had to live these really holy lives. And they'd come back from their two-year mission trip, and then they'd be like, dude, let's go get wasted and smoke and drink. And so right then he was like, I think that this isn't a true religion because they don't actually want to do these things. All right, so that's what's going to set Christianity apart from religion. And it's all from the Greek word used here, which is metanoia that Paul uses in Romans 4, which is the word for repentance. And the definition of repentance is this. It's a changed heart and it's a changed mind. Now, this is going to be a shocking statement for many of you. All religions are going to say, stop being bad. You need to repent and be good. Every religion, every worldview is going to say that. But Christianity takes it to the next level. It's going to say, yeah, you need to stop being bad and you need to be good. But you know what else you need to do? You need to repent of your good works that you do with a wrong motivation. You guys remember the Pharisee giving money to the poor in the temple and fasting? But he was doing it all with the wrong heart and a wrong motivation. I love what Isaiah the prophet tells us about good works. He says, good works with a wrong motivation or without faith It's like a filthy rag. See, these religious people can be tithing, dressing up for church. They can be giving money, but their hearts are wrong. Now, one of the things I like to think about uh, good work or these filthy rags, uh, how many of you in here have ever changed a diaper? All right, I'm just going to give you a a visual illustration, right? Um, God says when you do good works, but your heart is wrong, it's like a poopy wet wipe. All right, I've held thousands of these in my life. I have three little kids. Thank God they're all potty trained now. Uh, But literally, that's what God says our good works are like when our heart is wrong, when we're doing these good works to be better than other people. I love this chapter. Paul is saying religion gives us a hard heart, but Jesus gives us 
a new heart. Paul wants to remind these people about the changed heart that comes from Jesus. And how do we do that? Remember, it was the kindness of the Lord that led you to repentance. And it's going to be the kindness that you show to others that's going to lead to repentance. Yes, it's going to be truthful, but it's also going to be kind. This is what it means to be born again. Even though you fell 4,000 miles short, God forgave you and he made you righteous. Okay, so what does this transition look like for us if you want to go from religion to good works? You want to leave religion and good works and go to a relationship with Christ. What does this transition look like? And uh, my observation in life, I think there's really only two kinds of people. There's people who are early and there are people who are late, right? And maybe you're married to a late person. Are anyone in here married to a late person? All right, I grew up, my dad worked for the government. And so you always have to be on time, right? So I just always was on time, right? My wife grew up on a farm and something always breaks down on a farm whenever you need to go somewhere. Her parents literally can be an hour and a half late to events. It's crazy, right? But they're farmers. Like there's always something to do, right? And so I resonate with this story from this pastor. See, when you're an early person and someone shows up late, you can immediately think you're better than somebody else, right? You show up late and then someone, or sorry, you're early and someone shows up late and you can start to judge them in your mind. They're probably late because they're lazy. I don't know. Maybe they don't have like self-discipline. Maybe they didn't go to bed on time. I don't know what it is, but you can immediately start to get judgmental, even though there's no rule in the Bible that says you need to be on time. In fact, when you look at Jesus's life and Paul's life, they were late and people would get really mad at him. Jesus, why didn't you show up before this dude died? Paul, you said you were going to come here and you didn't. And so I know it's, it's shocking, right? Being on time is actually not one of the Ten Commandments. I wish it was. I like being early, remember. But I heard this story about this pastor, and he said he was like me. He would just judge people who showed up late. Uh, and this one time, he got asked to officiate this wedding. It was a big wedding, and it was supposed to be at 3 p.m., so he thought. He wrote it down in his calendar, 3 p.m., so he showed up 20 minutes early at 2.40 p.m. But guess what? He was 40 minutes late to this wedding. And they had to find somebody else to officiate the wedding because he didn't show up. He was 40 minutes late, right? And he just was beating himself up, right? He's the person that's always judging late people. And so he went up to this couple after the wedding ceremony, and he just was going to grovel and ask for forgiveness and just tell them how bad he was. And what shocked him is that these Christians were graceful. They looked at him and said, hey, man, this could happen to anybody Like, we love you, and we're just glad you're here, and it would mean a lot to us if you just came to the wedding reception afterwards. They restored him on the spot, and he realized for the first time, the reason I'm supposed to show up early is not to be better than somebody else, but to love and serve other people with good works. Our job as Christians is to restore people. I love what Paul tells us in another letter. He says, Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation, restoring people to God, not the ministry of the law, which is the ministry of judgment. And so what are good works for Christians? This is my definition. Good works are the evidence of saving faith that you're born again, you have a changed heart, and you use your good works to restore other people. Think about it like this. God doesn't need your good works. Did you know that? God does not need your good works. But who needs your good works? 
Your spouse does. Your kids do. Your neighbors do. Your coworkers do. The city of Greeley does. UNC does. And so God gives us a change heart so we can demonstrate these good works to a dying world that doesn't have hope in Christ that maybe they'll see our good works and see our love for them and it will propel them to be reconciled to Jesus. Because without Christ, there is no hope for them. All right, so application. Now, this is a hard, this is a hard statement, but I'm going I'm to be real with you. Here's a question. What if you don't feel like doing good works? I mean, that's going to happen to all of us, right? I don't want to show up and set up or tear down. I don't want to give the first fruits of my money to the church or to Christian missionaries. I don't want to forgive people. I don't want to be patient with people who are late. Like, I don't feel like doing that. So what do you do? Now, I think C.S. Lewis, the, the Christian philosopher and theologian, can help us. I love what he said, uh, and this is pertaining to marriage, but I think we can take this to life. He said, if you wait for feelings of love before acts of love, your marriage will fail. Feelings aren't going to come. But if you give acts of love, feelings will come later. And so once again, you might not feel like loving or serving or giving good works to your neighbor or your coworker. And I would say your feelings are valid and we need to talk about our feelings to find out maybe your priorities are wrong. Maybe you're burning out. But I want to remind us this morning, our feelings aren't king. Jesus is. And when we know his love, we're going to be zealous and eager for good works. All right, now this is a tough transition, which leads to my third question. Is it the wrath of God or the God of wrath? We're just going to look at Romans 2, 8 through 9. And if you didn't hear John's sermon last week, uh, he talked a lot about this, probably better than I can. And so listen to that, all right? Uh, It was amazing. Uh, But we're going to talk a little bit about God's wrath real quick. Romans 2, 8 through 9 says this. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. All right, so what is wrath? The definition of wrath that I found in the dictionary It was angry punishment for a crime. So punishment for a crime. Now, why does this matter? If you think God is wrath or God is anger, you're probably not going to want to approach him. I want you guys to think about that person in your life and their primary emotion was anger. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a boss. And did you feel safe around that person? Like, man, I'm just excited to hang out with that angry person and share my heart. Like, they're probably going to be really loving to me, right? No, you like walk on eggshells around angry people. You're like, I hope I don't offend them because if I do, man, they're just going to let me have it, right? And this is honestly how angry people control people, right? And so here's the question. Is God like an angry, controlling boss or parent? And this is why we have to look at what the scriptures say about God. I love what 1 John 4.20 says. It says this, God is love. Psalm 103.8 says this, God is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. What does this mean? Anger isn't who God is. Love is who God is. Wrath is not who he is. 
but it's what he does because he is love. John gave a great example last week. Here's my example for this week is I want you guys to imagine I see my uh, six-year-old daughter walking home from school. She's a kindergartner, and I love her. And I want, I want you guys to imagine I see like a pack of middle school boys come out, and they just beat her up. They start kicking her. They start taking things out of her backpack. Now, imagine if I just say, you know, those boys are still like 80% good the rest of the time. Like, I think I'm just going to let this slide. It just doesn't really bother me to see my daughter getting kicked in the face. No worries, right? Like, would that be loving, Right? That would be horrendous, right? I would come in like an angry, roaring lion and teach those boys a lesson. I'd call the police and, and I, would, I would make sure that they, were, they experienced the punishment for their crime because I love my daughter and I don't want her to get hurt like that. And this is God's wrath. He's so loving. He's so kind. He's so passionate about you that he hates the evil in this world. He hates the evil that's been done to you. He hates the evil that's been done in the world. And he hates the evil in you that destroys your life. In fact, he hates it so much that he gave his one and only son to bear our wrath. See, on the cross, Jesus took all the punishment that mankind deserves. All your evil, all my evil, all the poison within us was taken out of us and it was put on the cross. And Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. And God, in that moment, what he was saying to the world is, I love you. I love you. I love you with an everlasting love because I gave you my son. And here's the good news of the gospel. God is not angry with you anymore when you put your faith in Jesus. And this changes everything about your life. If you think God is still angry with you as a Christian, all your good works are going to be to appease God and make him happy. Jesus appeased God for you. You could never appease God. You have too much sin in your life. You can't fulfill the law, but Jesus can, and he did, and he did it for you because he loves you. And when you know God's not angry with you anymore, it literally changes how you live your life. You're grateful. Man, I should be dead right now because of my sin. I should be in jail because of my sin. But instead, I get to sit at the table with God, and he loves me and calls me his son, and he's never going to leave me. His love is never going to run away from me. That's the good news of the gospel. And last of all, this isn't popular, but if you don't think God is angry with sin and injustice, you're not going to live on mission. Here's the reality. God hates sin. He hates the injustices in the world. And he's going to punish people who don't repent and put their faith in Jesus. And like I said, this isn't a popular message, but it's 100% true. Those who don't have Jesus are in great danger. And you know what the world needs? is a relationship with Christ. And so my prayer and my hope, church, is that we wouldn't look to religion to save us, we would be zealous for good works, and we would realize that God's not angry with us, but he is angry with sin. And when we get that, church, I believe we can radically live on mission. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We know this is a, a tough word that re religious people uh, are in greater danger than sinners, religious people who think they're right with God because of their religious works, who think they're better than others. And so I pray for Salt Church, God, that we would see that everyone has fallen short 
of the glory of God, that we've all broken the law, that we wouldn't look at others with judgment, but we would love them. Lord, that we could correct each other in love. We could observe our shortcomings with love. And we would know that religion is not going to save us. Religion is not going to make us nice. But your kindness leads to repentance, Jesus. I pray you give us new hearts that actually desire to do good works. And Lord, where we don't feel like doing good works, where we don't feel zealous for good works, forgive us, God. It's so easy to be selfish because of the sin that remains. And so I pray we would be a church that is zealous for good works. And Lord, because of propitiation, because of the cross, you're not angry with us. And I pray we would know that. Those who have put their faith in Jesus would know you're not angry at us. And Lord, likewise, I pray we would see, God, that you are angry with sin, that you will judge the nations. And Lord, I pray that would be one of our motivations, not the only motivation that would encourage us to love our neighbors those who don't know you with good works, with word and deed. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.